Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking Maura Cronenberg and ultimately his uh, fear of penetration. So join the sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost uh, three years now, which is yeah. insane. Creeping uh, up. And also our uh, bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre movies, which, believe it or not, there are uh, movies coming out. We just talked about <laughs> uh, giant Russell Crowe in Unhinged and also oh, yeah. uh, uh, Pure Flicks John Wick. <laughs> or, or, or John Wick at home uh, for Christian parents. Yes, definitely. Um, so if you have any interest in any of that, patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we did have a lot of people make the jump this week, so we're going to give them their shout-outs. We had uh, Dylan Seeley, Austin Ammer, Scott Morris, Rob Harvey, Jeremy Pollack, Riley Danson, Oh, the the Scandinavian guys. They got a. They got. They're okay. Here we go. Um, Give it your best. Halvoror Jan Gumunsen. And is he like a prince? That's awesome. It's pretty. <laughs> it's a pretty sick name. I'm not gonna lie. That is um, killer. Th- this show has become. Um, Listen to Josh mis- mispronounce your name at the beginning <laughs> of every episode. Absolutely. Uh, Scoot Regal. Uh, Jeffrey Skull. And Brian Corcoran, uh, Alvin Amorty, Riley Pelling, uh, and that's everyone. Awesome. Thank you, thanks guys. Thanks so much. Appreciate yeah, thanks so much you. for uh, signing up. Hope you guys are enjoying all those bonus episodes. Uh, that's the one plug for the uh, week. The other plug, as always, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know you are, I see the stats. I see you right now listening on Apple you Podcasts. While you're listening to this exact intro, scroll down to the bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there, preferably a positive one. Helps us <laughs> climb the ranks over at iTunes and and helps us find new listeners that way. We, we appreciate that as well. And if it is negative, make it funny. That's all I ask. Yeah, there's there's a couple <laughs> funny negative ones out there. Uh, at some point, at some point, we're gonna have to go back to reading some of them out on the show. Oh yeah, um, I would love to do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's all the plugs for the week. Welcome back uh, to another episode. As always, I'm your host Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, my co-host Jamie Miller. Welcome back, guys. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us, and uh, we would have been in the thick of Noir Vember. So we had a uh, special special guest, Doctor 
Peter Labuza on to do Phantom Lady 1944 and May God Forgive Me 1948. We talked about sort of um, uh, Joan Harrison, who was a regular collaborator of Hitchcock, kind of taking the reins over and making her own sort of quasi-feminist noir. And then May God Forgive Me, which um, was a... (laughs) Uh, another one of those films that good luck finding it out there. Peter had to yeah. send us uh, a a direct link that he uploaded for us because it is a sort of underseen Mexican noir starring uh, Maria Felix. Um, yeah, and we had to very use fun uh, watch. we had to use YouTube translation. So that's how that's how crazy we had to get with that one. Yeah, yeah, we 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 got the broad strokes of that one between the three yeah. of us. We we figured, <laughs> figured out what out. the plot of the movie was, um, <laughs> but but as always, uh, the, the the filmmaking itself I think carried much of that film uh, through it. So sometimes Absolutely. it's cool to just uh, have a test experiment on, uh, you know, how a movie works when you uh, don't understand the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but then last week we kind of did the the big episode of Noir Vember because there is a, a, a little film out there called maybe you've heard of it. It's called Mank. Everyone's got Mank fever. They're manking out. <laughs> uh, David Fincher's Mank, obviously about the production of Citizen Kane, and we realized uh, as a result we haven't done Orson Welles on the show yet. So last week yeah. for the uh, bonus listeners exclusively over on the Patreon, we talked about the Lady from Shanghai. Uh, as well as The Third Man. Um, we wanted to talk about 40s Orson Welles because that's the period that Mank takes place in, and there's not a lot of 40s Orson Welles that really fits the uh, fit, fits the show. He wasn't a, uh, a big genre head. Uh, we yeah. could have done The Stranger from the, from the 40s, um, and uh, later on at some point we're definitely going to do Touch of Evil, but uh, Lady from Shanghai... Very cool noir, and then the third man. It is a film school classic, respecting the classics, <laughs> uh, as our friends at Extended Clip like to say. So, if you want that episode, uh, that was last week's bonus episode. Go to Patreon.com/slash These Voids Podcast. Yeah, but this week we're in uh, the first week of December. Now we are out of November, but we decided, you know what? Let's let's stick around in the crime realm. Uh, and to do that with us, we have a special guest, a writer for Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson. Anna, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for uh, this episode. Us too. You brought on a, a, a Toronto classic that neither of us had seen. And as, as good yeah. Canadian boys, we felt a little ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's exciting. I didn't know you both hadn't seen it. Um, yeah, I got to bring a little bit of Toronto to this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what uh, what two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together? I have uh, brought The Silent Partner and Cape Fear. Um, And so I paired these two together because when you asked me to be on the show, definitely one of the first movies that came to mind was The Silent Partner. Um, It's just a real, you know, kind of under underrated and slash underseen tax shelter gem uh, it's Toronto, it's Christmas, and now we're kind of entering December-ish, yep. getting close there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, it's it's a appropriate time for it. And um, among the things that this film does, you know, it's kind of this very quintessential story of, like, the everyman who goes up against a villain who, like, isn't just bad, but is, you know, real kind of slimy and just, you know, a real, real bad guy. And I think that 
one of the other movies that does that idea very well is um, Scorsese's Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. um, here we are, you know, just to, here to talk about, you know, good, <laughs> yeah, good, and, and good versus evil. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and one thing that's one right. thing I thought that was sort of interesting, Biblical. too, that kind of um, yes. paired them together was that um, both of the leading roles are a little bit thornier than you would expect to, because as yes. much as yeah. the villains of the film are absolutely slimy psychos. The both the Elliot Gould and the Nick Nolte character in this are both slightly um, more morally ambiguous than you would expect of people mm-hmm. going up against that. And both films kind of take that into account. I know that Scorsese, for sure, when he read the screenplay for uh, the Cape Fear remake, he was like, man, the, Nick Nolte is too good of a person and the family is too nice. So they actually mm-hmm. did rewrites where like <laughs> they introduced some thornier elements. Um, but oh, we'll get into fun. that when we get into... In, into both films here yeah but yeah, uh, definitely be- like good guys who do something bad to a much worse person yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely but yeah that being said i think we're going to jump right into it here we are going to start off with the silent partner i don't know how you managed to pull it off well, i guess you're gonna have to tell me one of these days but we uh, we worked it together didn't we i thought i knew you but you've changed I'm going to kill you, so help me. I'm going to kill you. Starring Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, and Susanna York. One night when you come home, you'll find me on the inside, and that'll be the night you'll wish you'd never been born. It was the only way to make him the silent partner. All right, we are talking The Silent Partner, the 1978 Canadian heist film and a uh, apparently a remake of the 1969 Danish film Think oh. of a Number, which is uh, based on a uh, Danish novel. Um, the film was directed by Daryl Duke, and I was incredibly shocked to learn, written by Curtis Hansen? What did he do? Uh, he is the, I mean, some, some people will probably know him as the director and writer of L.A. Confidential, but he also directed, oh, okay. like, 8 Mile and Wonder Boys. Oh, right, right, um, right. And, yeah, I, w- and I mean, obviously, back in the day, too, he, he wrote, like, um, I think he wrote White Dog for Sam Fuller. Oh, okay, yeah, so, I've heard of that one. That's a pretty yeah, wild so, one, right? So, early in his career, he got started kind of, like, as a, as a writer and an, uh, adapting novels, and this appeared to be one of those. And I just saw, I saw, I didn't realize until I saw his name in the credits. And I was like, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, but the film stars uh, Elliot Gould uh, as a character named Miles Cullen and Christopher Plummer as an absolute fucking psycho oh my uh, God. named Reichel. Um, and in, in the peripheries, we also have um, Susanna York. Obviously, some people might know her from the Superman films. I know her personally from Robert Altman's Images. Um, which is a very cool little film. She's so good in it too. But uh, very broadly, the film uh, follows Elliot Gold's character, who is kind of like an unassuming and kind of bored uh, bank teller uh, when the film begins, who realizes that they're one of the local Santa Claus uh, at at the mall that he works at, which is obviously the Eaton Center in Toronto for any, uh, any, any, any Canadians out there. 
is and that his his bank is actually going to be robbed and he thinks that it's going to be robbed by one of these uh santas because he's getting some bad vibes and he also finds a bank note that has you know uh, uh, a threat written on it saying i have i have a gun give me all the money so he uh but what's really interesting about this character right off the bat with elliot gold is that his first instinct isn't to warn anybody or to, you know, try to intervene in that. His thought is, how could I use this situation to my advantage? And what kind of the sort of kickstarting event of the film is him deciding that what if he can steal all of that money by hiding it in his own lunchbox, and then Mm -hmm. by the time the guy actually comes to rob him, he only gives him the float um, of, of cash. And then, you know, everyone assumes that, oh, this money disappeared because the bank robber stole it, but the bank robber actually only ran away with the float and Elliot Gold took the remaining, I believe it's, uh, what what, the exact figure comes up a million times, $48,350. That's the one. Think of a number. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but and we'll we'll get into some of the specifics because there, there's some cool ways that 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 scene plays out. But yeah. um, essentially, after that, the film becomes a kind of uh, a cat and mouse procedural, a series of sort of action and reactions based on this inciting incident, uh, with a lot of double crossing and triple crossing. It, it actually has like a pretty uh, clockwork plotting to it in the writing, and it's realized by Daryl Duke in in. Um, you know, some some very decently done, almost uh, occasionally Hitchcockian uh, suspense sequences, despite the fact that this is a, again, as Anna mentioned, a tax shelter Canadian film, a true blue Canucksploitation movie <laughs> um, that was basically made uh, to launder money. Oh, OK. But hey, it's a pretty good film. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. As long as it's a good film, you can do what you like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I was reminded personally of... Um, you know, it has a little bit of that '70s existential crime film in it. Something like a little bit of like a, a little bit of Walter Hill in there. A yeah. little bit of we've talked about on the show the early days of David Cronenberg when he was making uh, Canadian uh, funded uh, independent films like Shivers and Rabbit. Rabbit actually also has a mall Santa scene, I think, in Montreal though. Right. Um, but it also reminded me of a a true blue exploitation film out of Canada, Sudden Fury, which is like a small budget Canadian Hitchcock thriller about a Toronto real estate fraud, basically getting into a car accident and in the heat of the moment deciding to leave his wife to die in the wreckage because she refuses to loan him money for his scheme. (laughs) And then he spends most of that movie simply trying to escape the immediate subsequent consequences and collateral damage of like that decision. And it basically just follows like the logistics of like, how does he escape that situation what goes wrong in that situation and this has a very similar kind of layout to it where it's the logistical thrill of the constant sense of Elliot Gold makes a decision which triggers something that happens which then he has to react to as well and it gets to some pretty horrible places but uh, uh in that movie the the Hitchcock movie uh just comparing characters d- does he paint that guy as more of a as more of an asshole even behind the scenes because it seems like with Elliot like although he's doing all these pretty awful things he still throughout the film plays him very like timidly and very almost innocently mm-hmm. uh and i just found i found that interesting is there is there a difference there with that alfred hitchcock character because i found that very interesting in this movie it's just the fact that he's almost like just very average but what he, the, the actions that he's doing are clearly horrible and and getting other people into trouble and violence and all that so 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Elliot Gold is a, uh, just as an as an actor is a huge uh, thing for that. Obviously, he's hot okay. off the long goodbye and off Nashville, and I personally just find him very um, kind of uh, char- charismatic in that kind of way, even when he's playing playing a super quiet character. Sure. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do think that you know he's definitely less less psycho than the character from 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 Sudden Fury. Um, he just makes some some it's like a decisions almost. that obviously endanger people. And yeah, definitely, definitely. He yeah. there, there's a great line at one point in the film where someone talks about uh, the fact that you know uh, you know the boss underestimates you. I think right. Lots of people underestimate you um, because, you know, he, he becomes a little bit more suave once he has $50 in his bank or $50,000 in his bank account, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is also just kind of cute uh, hearing people talk about $50,000 and like uh, killing each other over it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, Anna, what was the like when when did you watch this for the first time? Um, so I saw this a uh, couple years ago. Uh, theater in Toronto showed it. It was very fun. The, it was a print, and um, oh my god, I, I don't know exactly what had happened, but it was kind of like all of it tinted red, like this kind of fuchsia-y, pinkish red, a very like festive color. And it was screened here for um, Christmas, like in December at some point. And then I also watched this. So I've seen this twice in a theater, um, which is very lucky. Um, they actually, the Paradise, which just reopened in Toronto earlier this year, um, or at the start of the year, they showed it in January on my birthday. So Amazing. I got to just like take a bunch of friends and say, hey, it's my birthday. We're going to go see this like heist movie from the 70s. And you can't <laughs> say no because it's my birthday. And, That's how you do um, it. Yeah, thankfully everyone really liked it. And, you know, I mean, I'm, like, kind of low-key obsessed with Elliot Gould. Like, I, he's the best. Um, so just, yeah, this kind of became, like, an instant favorite, even though I only discovered it myself maybe two years ago now. Yeah, I mean, Ed, Elliot Gould is very... Um, I mean, obviously, The Long Goodbye is just one of my favorite films, so it was awesome mm-hmm. to get him see doing something um, sort of in a, in, in a similar realm, because in, in that, he's, he's, he's a little bit more of an active agent, but in The Long Goodbye, okay. he's definitely got that kind of, like, drifter-voyeur quality to him, and yeah. a lot of that is used here in, in The Silent Partner, where it... It reminded me a lot of, um, like, when I was speaking of Hitchcockian, it reminded me, especially in the early sequences, of of something like Rear Window. It's a lot of him just observing mm-hmm. things at work because he's kind of bored and he kind of has the time for his attention to wander um, and that is actually the reason that he picks up on all of these details that there is going to be a robbery at his bank um, mm-hmm. is because he just has that time um, to sit around. And what's so interesting also is that similarly to Rear Window, you are sort of implicated in that subjective point of view, where again, um, as I mentioned his first immediate reaction is not to raise to the attention that anyone is in danger of being threatened with a gun at the bank. His uh, decision instead is to uh, basically try to use it to his uh, his own advantage and figure out what he's going to do. And I love that, you know, the way that Duke and Hanson have sort of put it together here is that we are introduced to him, you know, grabbing his lunchbox from home. And you're like, okay, this is a weird reaction to finding out that, you know, you're going to have a gun pointed at you probably in the next, you know, few hours. And you don't really get to pick up on the details of what he's doing other than we see his silent decision-making process. And then through that, 
you know, we kind of figure out, oh, he's stuffing the cash into the box. And what was so funny is I was watching uh, watching the film for the first time, obviously. I thought that he was just a Boy Scout. I thought that he was just trying to find a way to save the bank money. So did I. <laughs> like, like, like when he was putting the money into the lunchbox, my first thought was, okay, so he's he's just thinking ahead on, you know, he's going to be the hero and he's going to make sure the guy doesn't get away with, you know, with all of the money. And as someone who has obviously worked as a cashier before, too, I was just like, this th- this is the point of view that sort of like makes, makes sense to me a little bit. Especially with how and, he plays his character. Just so innocent yeah. in a sense. Yeah, that's, definitely. That's such an exceptionally Canadian response to being robbed. Like, well, I got to save the bank money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe any just, Americans watching the same film will not have that reaction. But that was <laughs> it, exactly what I was thinking. I mean, it's, it's set in Toronto, you know. We got to put that Canadian likeness in there. <laughs> yeah, I also just, I got to note that it's a, it's a Superman lunchbox, which I think is both very <laughs> cute for that character, but also kind of fun with Susanna York being in the movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, and, and, and what, what's funny, too, is that, you know, this obviously is taking place at Christmas time. It's taking place in the mall. You have a lot of these festive colors. You have the, the Santa coming up. And there's a great line, too, where they talk about how, like, the Santa is kind of cold. And they were like, have you ever seen a Santa who doesn't like kids? Yeah, because um, the kid's, like, coming up to him and, like, Santa, I want a toy. And he's, like, actually trying to grab, like, Santa's gun that he has in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, the kid saves, like, the first robbery, I think. The yeah, Santa's so annoyed, he's like, setup. fuck it, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also, uh, I didn't realize at first that it was Christopher Plummer in, in the Santa outfit. Yes. Yeah, for real. But, yeah, when, when he approaches as Santa and, you know, instead of giving him all of the money because he just saw a, a dude make a deposit of, like, $40,000, he just gives him mm-hmm. the float. And he's like, no, 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 I just watched that guy give you more money. You have to, you have to like, give it all to me. And Elliot Gold at that point triggers the alarm. And also, uh, mall cops in the 70s, I guess, were just, like, military people. Oh, man, they were just popping caps. Like, that guy is just shooting into the, into the like, the, the crowd the of civilian the civilian-packed yeah. yeah, escalators. Like, <laughs> he's, just, and he's just going, just shooting it off. It's a, it's a wild thing to see him, like, uh, just run up the escalator, and he's still shooting with, like, 15 people surrounding him. It's, it's crazy. Just, like, packed Eaton Center Mall at Christmas. Yeah, And it's yeah. just like, we're just going to fire it off. And in Canada. So that was a little shocking yeah. to me, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I thought it was particularly funny because that escalator, uh, I used to take it, like, every day to school. Like, obviously, I went to school <laughs> near Young and Dundas. Traumatized so, you a little bit? Yeah, I was watching that escalator, and I was just like, damn, man, a good thing I'd never got shot in a crossfire with a Santa before. <laughs> with a Santa Claus. <laughs> Not a good but yeah, Christmas. I, <laughs> it's revealed that uh, Chris Plummer is, is playing the Santa. And we last talked about Chris Plummer. It's so awesome seeing... I mean, Chris Plummer, in my opinion, even as early as I've seen him, he never really looked super young in the movies. Uh, yeah. This is this is the youngest Chris Plummer you're you're going to see other than, uh, you know, probably some of the, uh, the s- closer to stage work he kind of did in the, we, the early 70s and the late 60s. Did we do um, that one movie with him where he played uh, Sherlock Holmes? Was that... That yes, we, we that was did, kind of uh, a younger one, 
I thought. Yeah, well, I thought it was funny. I actually went back and looked at that because I was watching Silent Partner and I was going, man, is this the youngest thing I've ever seen Christopher Plummer in? And I went back yeah. and saw we did Murder by Decree with by Bob Clark, another uh, Canadian uh, low-budget genre film from 1979. Okay. Um, and after, I watched it, I and, and he actually does have the gray hair and everything going on in that. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> so I was like, damn, clearly not that young, or at least made to look older for playing the role of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Right, um, right. But here, he actually does have, like, for some reason, like a like a young, like, badass, like, hip look to him for yeah. some reason that I, 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 I couldn't exactly figure out uh because obviously we don't explore too much of his character background or anything like that. But I was like, it was kind of bizarre seeing Christopher Plummer, like very esteemed Canadian old man actor wearing <laughs> like, like, like a, like a tank top and a chain and yeah. he's got like holes in his shirt. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of like when, uh, Rucker Hauer got- played the bad guy in, uh, Nighthawks. Where it was like he has yeah, a this kind of yeah. smooth suaveness to him a little bit, but he's still a complete psychopath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just very interesting uh, context to see Christopher Plummer because I always just think of him as like kind of like a, like a like a prestigy grandpa kind of role mm-hmm. now. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. and 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 we will say anyway. Christopher Plummer gets real slimy in this movie. Yeah, oh my he's god. Bad. Yeah, yeah, the as, first thing as he does as uh, when he's when he's running away from the security guard in order to get the the lady out of the way that's in uh, blocking the entrance, he just straight up punches her in the face, <laughs> and then like like he does a ton of violence, honestly, uh, mostly to like women in this a mm-hmm. lot of the time, and then uh, and then at the tail end, there's this kind of thing where he dresses up, which we'll get to, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I was not crazy about that shot of him just putting his bare foot on a woman's oh, face. Man, that's it's oh. yeah. That was some really like, horrible it, image. Yeah, really <laughs> filthy stuff right here for sure. And he's in like a like some weird sex sauna or something like that. So there's just like levels of seediness that just layer on top of each other. And there's like yeah, a I'm, line I, when he's leaving that scene that I think someone says like, oh, you went too far this time. I'm like, what did he do last time? Yeah, like what is the acceptable, <laughs> the average day for this guy? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah, and obviously it's it's implied in, in some way that he's very angry about the day's events and he's he's taking it out, obviously, on, on the prostitute character here. But what's sort of interesting is that Elliot Gold, obviously, he gets to play the 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 hero who sort of like prevented a prevented a robbery, and Christopher Plummer's just watching him on TV and just getting like absolutely furious because he was like, <laughs> I should have gotten away with you know fifty thousand dollars, and instead here's this guy who clearly um, took that money uh, for himself, or at least I'm the only one who knows that you know they're saying that fifty thousand dollars is missing, and I know I don't have it. So Elliot Gold has, you know, sort of got one up on him. And the rest of the movie is honestly just a series of Elliot Gold cucking Christopher Plummer uh, at, at one point, like actually, literally. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is what most of the movie is. And then Christopher Plummer getting very, very angry about it and, you know, deciding to pursue him in a sort of like, uh, again, a, a cat and mouse, uh, mono a mono style um, thriller. 
And I, again, it, it maintains that sort of like procedural element to it and that, and that kind of like wit to it as well, which I, which I kind of appreciated. Like both characters in their own way are kind of smart or they, they have plans that make sense to you when you, you know, think them through and then it's just a constant sense of one-upmanship after that. Um, which is, there's even, there's even stuff like where he, like Elliot has the opportunity to actually put him away and he doesn't do it just because he knows it would screw him over. So there's always these, these Mm -hmm. like smart little decisions he's making to get, you know, Plummer in trouble as much as he can, but without getting him caught as well, because Plummer knows so much information. So yeah, there's a lot of really intelligent, uh, dialogue and sequences that, that do that. Mm-hmm. I was also just one of, I mean, remember the first time I saw this, I was very surprised that, you know, I hadn't really seen a heist movie that does something like this before. And it seems like some of one of those, you know, really ingenious, but fairly simple um, concepts where it's like you work at a bank, you get the sense that it's going to be robbed. You put a little to the side. Everyone thinks the robber got away with the full amount and you kind of get to walk out mm-hmm. scot-free. Like it's, it's, it's very clever, but it's sort of very like straightforward where you're like, oh yeah, like if, you know, if you have a character that works at a bank and that happens, like that totally makes sense that that's something that they would try to do. So um, I just think it's like a wonderful conceit right out the bat that it really sets up something that is, you know, very crafty and smart, but also totally believable. Yeah, especially mm-hmm. with with uh, Elliot's character, because once again, like with his through his kind of timidness, you wouldn't think he would do something like this. But the way that he does it really does fit with his character, you know. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. kind of well, yeah, and then and then and then as 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 you mentioned too, um, it you you start to realize over the course of the film that that sort of that sort of unassuming kind of timid character is almost mm-hmm. in some way not who he really is and that that's yeah. kind of how he's able to get away with what you know some of the decisions that he makes is because again people um underestimate him based on his appearance and what's so and funny I'm- is that 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 also applies to Christopher Plummer's character who you know when they when he realizes that you know you know we are the only two people in the world who know about you know this missing money and where it actually went um i think he says he calls them from the the payphone, and he says, "We both took the same risk. We're partners now, and like that's what that's where obviously they get the title from from the silent partner because they are partners without actually having to communicate with each other." Yeah, and I'm going to become the silent partner. That's right. right. That's the moment. <laughs> Uh, because he stole the money before the robber even could. Um, and then Plummer immediately is just like, all I want is that money. Just give me that money, man, and I won't make your life like a living hell. By the way, also, that scene where Plummer confronts him, Plummer has got the scariest eyes and eyebrows in oh. the game. Oh, that yeah. shot of him in the mailbox, just like looking, it's <laughs> so good. It's terrifying. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Isn't that in, how, how is that even possible that someone is like menacing just looking through a mailbox? Mail slot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, and oh, that like dude. you know it's Christopher Plummer who like you said like he's kind of this like sweet grandfatherly figure <laughs> in cinema often, and now it's just like you just see this small portion of his face and he looks so scary 
Yeah, and there's um, also kind of like an added element to watching uh, Miles like push all that stuff in front of the door, just get, you know, make a, a really sturdy barricade, and then Christopher Plummer still finds a way to like terrify him just through the mail slot. You know, mm-hmm. it's just this small little detail. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and he's he, he's like, next time I'll be inside. <laughs> right. But, yeah. Uh, and there's Which there's lots does. of times throughout the film, but yeah, where he comes back to his apartment, and you know, he's been inside while he's been gone. And uh, yeah. and I guess that kind of introduces like Miles has this uh, this this hobby I guess where he collects really expensive and rare fish and and one time where he <laughs> he goes That's yeah so he has funny. like a blowfish on like six month layaway or something like that I don't know <laughs> uh, and uh, and Christopher Plummer like when he walks in he sees his whole apartment trash or, or Elliot uh, sees his whole apartment trash and Plummer fucking stabbed one of the fishes and pinned it to the wall with a knife. Like just these very like personal things that he ends up doing eventually too are, are pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Also, I got to say, so the, the initial scene where we sort of see him and Susanna York go into the fish store and he's talking about how, Oh, I ordered this fish six weeks ago. It's so cute. And it's so yeah. like, it's, I don't know the way that gold plays that is just lovely. And like, you know, I love this film. I think the the little ingredient that I would have ju- that would have just like pushed this all into an all timer like beyond is I would have loved if like in that scene the fish he was picking up was a beta. <laughs> just like with his character the whole time I was watching it I was like oh that would be like the cherry on top that would be um, hilarious but it's like an angelfish or something yeah <laughs> That's yeah great. it's. it's it, it's an angel fish. Well, cause it is interesting with, uh, Susanna York's character who, um, is, uh, a, a coworker of his at the bank is sort of interesting because he is obviously interested in her. And I think near the beginning of the film, he even kind of like asks her out, but it, she's actually seeing, uh, the manager, uh, yeah. of the bank who is also married. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's interesting is that Elliot gold, like immediately is kind of like, uh, kind of, upset with her uh obviously about that and then she very pointedly you know sort of fires back at him like are you upset that you know i'm seeing a married man or are you upset that i'm just not seeing you and he sits there in that that for a second yeah it's a really important element to it because like elliot gold again he has this personality of being so timid and unassuming but he actually does have this sort of kind of this very subtly kind of aggressive behavior sometimes. Yeah. And it, it, it's only when he gets that money and he gets that confidence and he gets that set that, that other people start sort of picking up on him. And it's so funny watching Elliot gold, you know, go around his boss's party. Like he's the coolest guy on the planet because he just robbed his own bank and no one knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> I would. And I, something I also like about his character, I never get this vibe that although he ends up doing some really horrible things, like, like taking advantage of, of Julie, uh, while he's kind of pulling off the heist and all of that, like really takes advantage of, advantage of her emotions. Uh, it, it never seems to me like he realizes the bad things that he's doing. You know, like there's there's always this this layer of like the mask that he doesn't really realize he's wearing. I don't know if you got that same that same kind of vibe. I feel like he thinks of himself as the good guy, even though we're witnessing him do kind of awful things. Oh, definitely. I I, I think his character just kind of sees it as this is just the natural ladder climbing way of the world. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is you is you manipulate and you spin to your advantage. Um Mm -hmm. And it, it is interesting being in that kind of point of view because you realize that, you know, that's what 
kind of, you know, in, in, in some ways, that's also what Christopher Plummer's character is doing. So it's interesting that you kind of get mm. this, this twin sides of people trying to spin their environments a little bit to their own advantage. Obviously, Christopher Plummer is just willing to go way more psychotic with it. And, and actually, <laughs> it's very similar to the way that Cape Fear is set up, too, where you get the, the, the sort of like twin sides of, of lawyers. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I just found the the actual suspense sequencing itself like very well done. Um, like I really love that, you know, Elliot Gold, he's at first kind of shocked, obviously, that the robber has found him because he saw him on TV and that the robber, um, Christopher Plummer's character, is, you know, planning to very intentionally hunt him down until he gets that money back. And he's calling him at work. He's trying to freak him out. But once Elliot Gold realizes the situation he's in, again, he doesn't immediately go, holy shit, I've been made. I'll just give him the money and he'll fuck off. His immediate reaction is, how can I continue this? In, <laughs> in continuing to endanger himself, to endanger everyone around him. Yeah. Um, but he basically says, no, screw that. I, I won this money sort of like fair and square, so I'm not going to give it to him. And watching him begin to outmaneuver Christopher Plummer, like when he uh, you know, invites him up and says, fine, you can come up and talk to me about it and we'll figure this out. He invites him into his apartment, but then he makes his way down and then calls his own apartment from the payphone that Christopher Plummer <laughs> was just at, like creating like an exact replica shot of Mm -hmm. where they have switched positions in the frame and what does he go he goes it's me go fuck yourself (laughs) just runs away (laughs) the animal has been unleashed (laughs) i also yeah i love the staging with like the um the phone booth like kind of right outside the apartment and how much they use that like just you know the the scenes of him speaking mm-hmm. to um, Christopher Plummer and like he can see him and they're talking on the phone and like there's that division but they're very close. I just think it's like mm-hmm. it's used so well and I like that they kind of keep it up. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, too. I, yeah, I specifically love how many times people who are on the phone on the second floor in the apartment have to like run as fast as they can all the way down the stairs and out the door. And by the time they make it, the person's not at the payphone anymore. That happens like three or four times. (laughs) 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 Um, But uh, shortly after he uh, actually frames Christopher Plummer for a uh, stolen van that he, he actually steals, but then makes a tip call to the police in like a very funny voice um, to get uh, Christopher Plummer arrested for it. And then uh, Jamie already brought it up, but there's the scene right. where he goes into uh, uh, basically behind the two way mirror where he's going to identify the robber and he's given an opportunity to be like, is one of these guys, the guys who held up the bank. And he very strategically, even though he knows it's Christopher Plummer, he says that the man is not there because he realizes that if he said anything and he identified himself as the robber, then, um, Christopher Plummer would be free to, you know, start telling his side of the story. But because yeah, he never identified Yeah, but because he doesn't identify him, Chris it's in Christopher Plummer's best interest to not go, Hey, I'm the robber, and that guy's also the robber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, there's a there's a lot of smart, like, um, again, as as Anna put it, very simple writing, but writing that, you know, overall actually just ends up making the characters feel um just a little bit smarter and a little bit more more realistic in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, but 
they're, they introduced this subplot of a woman named uh, Elaine, played by the French-Canadian actress Celine Lomez, um, who uh, shows up at Elliot Gold's, like, I think it's his dad's funeral that he's, yeah. he's attending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she, it's revealed, is actually working for Plummer, but becomes sort of romantically entangled with, of course, the dashing Elliot Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she tells him um, she was his dad's nurse, and that's sort of their meet-cute. Um, mm. and, um, yeah, they start dating. And I love the, the, just the imagery of like, like miles with her in the convertible in that nice car. There is like a, like just a really smooth and suaveness to that, that scene mm-hmm. where they're flirting back and forth. I, I did really like that, even though, you know what miles is doing behind the scenes. And I guess well, we don't know who this girl is yet, but we will. Yeah, and but there's this interesting thing where like she's obviously performing a little bit of of, of a character towards him, and she's talking right, about right. I saw you on the, on the television, and you know you must have been so scared to have that gun pointed at you. And I think his response response is like it was exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm there not and obviously. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that there's something that sort of like sparked a little bit between them about sort of like the danger that they're in. It kind of seems like Mm. Um, because, you know, she she knows that, you know, she's working for Christopher Plummer, a very dangerous character. And she knows that this guy is obviously capable of more than than his appearance. And it ends up sort of like translating a little bit to their know their their actual relationship that they end up having and then he kind of finds her chooses her a little bit as a bit of a partner in crime because at one point in the film he loses his safety deposit key because he put all of that money that he stole into a safety deposit box in the bank and he put the key in like an old the bank yeah so he gave technically gave the money back to the bank uh, or he's keeping it there. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny when he says that to Christopher Plummer, he's like, it's at the bank. And Christopher Plummer is like, you fucking clever bitch. <laughs> keeping it at the yeah. bank. That's so smart. Um, but the key he keeps inside uh, like an expired uh, uh, jar of jam, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and and his maid throws the jar out because she's like, what? It was expired. It was bad. And he's... Yeah, he starts freaking out about that. I also just, I need to interject. I just, I love when he he gets home and she says that she threw out the jam and he runs downstairs because he had just seen the garbage truck pulling away and he kind of isn't sure what to do. And he does this thing of like running towards the street as if he's going to go back. (laughs) And then he kind of like runs back towards his car and then he kind of like like goes back to the street. And you can just see the wheels turning where he's like, do I try and chase the garbage truck on foot? Do I go get my car? Like, what do I do? do? Where did it go? And it's, I just love the way he plays it as like, he has no idea what the plan is here. He did not, you know, foresee this potentially happening and he's just completely shit out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great performance in that, in that sequence. Yeah, no, and that's what I think works so much about the film. Again, it's constant. There's a constant sense of something happens, and Elliot Gold immediately has to have a reaction to it and start yeah. formulating a plan based on you know uh, developments that are being made. And it kind of welcomes you into that decision making process a little bit because you're sort of you're obviously you're watching him do it, but you're also sort of like considering it because the film is giving you enough information that you're always considering the information that's being given to you as well. And it, it, it makes the suspense sequence, like in particular, like when he starts plotting uh, 
with Elaine to basically find a way to get that key back is where she had he feigns the situation where he's going to play the bank teller. She's going to play, you know, sort of like a a uh, rich client who's going to come into the bank and basically pretend that she has lost her key and they need the guy to come in and, uh, you know, open the safety deposit box for them. Yeah, they them. need to get a locksmith in. Right. Yes. And they need to do it and- before Julie comes back. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that sequence is so tense and so mm-hmm. well done. Oh yeah, where the looking at you know, the clock El- and all that—it's great. Well, and also just their performances in that scene, like Elliot oh, yeah. Gold raising his voice to be like, uh, "Yes, ma'am, I can do that for you." Yeah, we'll get the locksmith in as soon as. The- <laughs> Are you sure you can't find your key? Did you look everywhere? <laughs> and I, I also I love that he does that. Also, um, when she she gets in, they get the locksmith and they go in and they open it up, and she's. Um, she basically has to like pretend that she's, you know, I don't know, checking in on something or she's getting something from there. Um, And there's like that little moment where she kind of considers taking the money herself and walking out of the bank with it. Um, Mm. And they're kind of fighting about it. And then Ghoul just like speaks really loudly. Oh, so you are returning your valuables to your safe deposit box. Like, <laughs> yeah. kind of like I've said it now you have to do it. And I love how yeah. like, not really seriously. She takes it as well. Like before that, when he's just kind of questioning her, she's laughing and she's not doing the, she's not playing the part correctly or anything like that. It's just, it's a great like contrast between the two who Elliot's trying to do this just so focused, not get himself fired or in trouble. And she just doesn't have as much risk. So I think she's not taking it as seriously. And it was, it, it's really comedic, honestly. Yeah. Oh, also, wait, um, I was going to bring this point up earlier, but um, we should note the reason that they need to do it before Julie gets back from her lunch break is because she might recognize Elaine because mm. he brought Elaine as a date to the wedding of John Candy and one of the other bank employees, Louise. Um, That's and right. And I, I feel like we got to mention that little subplot because I just like, For I sure. love that so much um, that they just, she's kind of this like, new banker there um, when the film starts and she ends up like getting married to John Candy, who's in like a pretty small role, but I think is very fun in this. Yeah. Yeah. It's one, it's one of his, uh, from what I understand it, it is one of his very earliest roles. We got all kinds of Toronto legends going Mm -hmm. on in here. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just love that. Yeah, no, immediately when I, I was Rick Dalton pointing at the screen, like immediately when John Candy was just walking around in the background, I was like, that's John Candy. I also, I I love that Louise like shows up to work wearing like the t-shirts that say like bankers do it with interest. (laughs) so good it gets me every time yeah there there is a lot of just like really uh funny little character detail to this i also love the manager who uh during this this scene is is like relaying to him the importance of banking i can't remember like the exact (laughs) thing the exact line that he gets but he's he is saying something like banking is one of the most in in important jobs in the world we (laughs) we keep the world going round or something i can't remember exactly what it is but i remember just being like that is just such a funny little detail to throw into the suspense in this suspense sequence because obviously he could not give a shit about banking (laughs) right now yeah yeah. furthest thing from his mind um (laughs) 
while he's trying to make sure that he can, you know, sort of get, get this money back. And the scene sort of like ends on Julie is making her way back in and to distract her, he has to reignite his relationship that he kind of starts oh, with her a little bit earlier. So in the film. mean. God yeah. And he, and, and he kisses her and is like, we, oh. we have to take chances in life. And then he clearly does it just so that Elaine can get it out of the bank in time. And that reaction that he has right when he's done it, he's like, okay, relief she's out of the bank we're safe we've done it and he's like all right i know that i just did something very romantic but i i need to go and uh we need we need to forget that this just happened and susanna susanna york's like expression of just like yeah just like complete confusion yeah she's got it's great it's amazing she has like tears flowing down but she's smiling as if there's like so much anger built up but she doesn't mm-hmm. quite want to release it yet, and it's it's so it's such a an oddly sad little little scene. Uh, but there's also something there's also something interesting in that dynamic because with that kind of setup, you'd almost expect that um, the dynamic would be more so that you know she's interested in him and he's kind of been you know pushing her off, and now he's <laughs> like using those feelings to manipulate her so she doesn't go back in. But Mm -hmm. their dynamic is kind of the opposite, where you get the sense that he's um, kind of not always, you know, kind of pursuing her. Um, I I think very much that kind of like, you know, I'll be here waiting if you ever want to try dating me. Um, (laughs) And like now he's kind of once again being very like forthright about those feelings. And I think it kind of puts her in a position where you know, she's not quite sure um, mm-hmm. what she wants. I think it's it's very, um, for Julie, it's very much a situation where she is maybe kind of interested, but not quite sure. And she has like other complicated feelings with like her boss who's married, who she's dating and all this stuff. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting kind of little glimpse at like their dynamic and their relationship there. For sure. Well, you, you you can tell a little bit, I think, that she is interested in this side of him that is a little bit more um, confident and not timid. And, yes. and But, but yeah. also he doesn't want to invite her into that because his, his mask is obviously his cover for that. So he doesn't view her as like someone who would be his partner in crime the same way that he is allowing Elaine to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, until like the very, very end of the film, he does imply it kind of earlier in the film, a tiny bit where he talks about, you know, how he has this this daydream that, you know, if if he just had forty eight thousand three hundred and fifty dollars, you know, maybe he'd uh, maybe he'd use that to uh, to get away and start a new life. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just a little daydream that he's got. And and she seems, you know, sort of a, a. you know, welcome and, and, and attracted to that idea a little bit, but you know, he is just so, uh, obviously swept up in this cat and mouse game that he's playing with Christopher Plummer that he doesn't even sort of give her, he doesn't even pay her any sort of attention. We actually forget about her for a large part of the movie when it's spent with Elaine until he has to go back to the bank for the Mm -hmm. safety deposit. Right. Um, but at, at this point, I think Christopher Plummer makes his way out of prison and we get what is probably uh, a strangely maybe too horrifying sequence. Oh, man, it uh, is violent. Yeah, where he finds out that, you know, Elaine uh, uh, has betrayed him for gold and is now sort of like working with her. 
with him. And now that not only has he lost the money, he's also lost her to the same fucking guy. He's obviously so like insanely pissed off about this that uh, he slits her throat and decapitates her on the broken glass of Elliot Gold's fish tank. Yeah, and that shot of him just like sliding her neck across the glass and and it and it show it's like a good Comes four seconds like pretty close up and you know they have like the blood going down the glass. It is brutal. It is a mm-hmm. really filthy death. Like, oh my god. From from what I understand, I think um um, Gerald didn't actually want that in the movie. I think that was, mm. I, mean, I don't know if that was like a, in the script and they kind of, you know, were forced to have it in, but I think he didn't want that. I think it was a, a little contentious inclusion um, mm-hmm. of kind of appealing to something a little, you know, schlocky exploitation horror over the kind of, like you said, like cat and mouse heist uh, shtick that the rest of the movie operates on, you know, because yeah, it, you, you definitely really feel gets, that, and it's totally out of nowhere. Like we see violence from Christopher Plummer before that, um, when he kind of like beats up the sex worker at the sauna and stuff like that, and you definitely get the impression he's not a good guy. He doesn't treat women well. He doesn't really treat anyone well. Uh, but the, that really takes it to like a real gnarly level of oh, just yeah. upsetting violence. Yeah, yeah, it's very severe oh. and very personal in a way that you you don't realize quite i mean like maybe if they had spent more time developing you know his relationship with elaine and that how that betrayal was that personal to him on some level but it definitely is just like uh you don't really get how it's any more serious than elliot gold like stealing the money and he definitely didn't decapitate (laughs) elliot gold or that wasn't his first thought anyway but also I don't know, maybe just he he's just he he's had it up to there. He's done. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I Well, I also as. think it's it's yes, like an act of violence against her for betraying him. Um, but I also think he very deliberately wants Elliot Gould to find the body. He oh, yeah. wants well, her yeah, to be and, left and, there for him to just like yeah. have, you know, and this in, in his apartment. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it's in the fish it's tank, which we obviously fish. know is super important yeah, to him. It's, it's the same thing as like when he pinned the fish to the wall. This time yeah. it's just another personal thing where he's like, look what I did. And to something that, to, like to uh, one, a person you loved and a, and a hobby that you loved, I guess. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah, because when Elliot Gold arrives on the scene and he sees that really horrifying image of, of her decapitated head sitting inside the broken fish tank, yeah. he is, it's like the one time in the film he is like really, really upset. Um, yeah, but. And, and he almost breaks down. And, and then, but then immediately after, yes. yeah. he's, he's <laughs> washing the blood, he's rolling her body into the carpet, which he's then going to go dump in the foundations of, See, like, you know, some, some other condos that they're building or something. Oh my God. Yeah, and and the, the sequence of him trying to get out of the apartment with her body in the carpet. And yeah. there's, I think it's, I think it's like a mail delivery thing. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's someone kind of going up the stairs and he has to kind of snake his way down the outside of the like stairwell thing. Um, I, I love that set piece. Yeah. it's And it also just shows like, like, you know, obviously, I mean, Plummer's character is just a, an outright psychopath, but there is something really, really gross and, and awful about 
the way that that Miles is able to just wrap her up into a carpet and dump her into a, found, a construction foundation, mm-hmm. so that well, yeah, he's that, once that, again not so, caught. Like it's just yeah, that's what's so intriguing evil, about his character is like he's at the point where this has escalated to decapitations in his apartment, and he's still not thinking. Let's maybe wrap I this should up. call some yeah. people for help. <laughs> like goddamn um, man. Instead, he's thinking about his own self-interest. And what's so amazing and what I think took the movie over the top for me is that he continues with that well beyond when, you know, the the movie even uh, suggests it. Because at this point, he is like, okay, I want this guy off my back. I'm just going to give him the money. So he goes back in into the bank, uh, and but he insists that it you know it needs to be handed to him at the bank uh, because it needs to be a public place where obviously you can't just kill him. So they 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 kind of both agree that Plummer is going to come to the bank in disguise. He's going to rob the bank again, but this time Miles is going to give him all of the money. This is actually a scene where he's grabbing the money, and the guy goes, uh, "I'm concerned about your attitude about banking." <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but. This scene, like, actually blew me away because at this point, some for some reason, once again, I like the characters in the film. I kept underestimating how far he was willing to go, yeah. And I genuinely thought, okay, he's going to give him the money this time. But holy fuck, uh, Christopher Plummer shows up in drag. <laughs> Great image, love yeah, seeing that. Am- I love the close up of him going down the escalator, and it's just yes. like it's, it's, it's further so revealed as the closer you get. It's great. And he comes down and he ro- he robs the bank uh, in drag and he gives him uh, the money. And once again, he only gives him the float. And he goes, okay, no, 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 you're, you're, you're fucking with me again. Like, this is, and, and uh, he points the, oh no, sorry, he, he doesn't know that he get, just given him the float. He actually gives him, you know, the money and says that it's all in there. But Christopher Plummer, uh, Basically, he's going to betray him and agree and, and, you know, obviously not go through with the agreement not to hurt him. And he's like, Mm -hmm. I'm actually just going to kill you right here and right now. But Gold's character, having anticipated that, actually only once again gave him the float and actually stages his own stick up a banknote saying that he's got a gun. He triggers the alarm, screams, he's got a gun before he's even pulled the gun. <laughs> Christopher Plummer shoots him and yeah. runs away, gets taken out by the mall cop, gets shot down. That mall cop and man. that mall cop, he's he's going for he's it. He's had a he's sure. had a crazy week, I gotta say. He's ready to go. No one's yeah, getting away is. the second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man. He pulls that gun quick. <laughs> and and that moment where he is just like he's he's like mortally wounded he's on the escalator they they bring him down and he looks at the money and he realizes that he has been he's been cucked once again <laughs> and he was only ever given the float money again despite <laughs> like again how severe of a place this has gone to Elliot Gold yeah. is still playing around and he says to the guy um something along the lines of he he gave me the bank's money and obviously, the we know what that means, but the, the security guard has this great line where he's just like, what the hell did you expect him to give you? His own money? Yeah. <laughs> so and good. And then Plummer oh, is just, man. like, falling. He I love that he, like, runs up the, um, he runs up the down escalator, so then, yeah. like, when he gets shot at the top, he kind of just, like, falls downward with the escalator and just ends up at the bottom. Like, it's just such a, like, yeah. unceremonious way to go out. 
And then, and yeah. then only yeah, to I, be like to reveal that news to the guard and to, for him to not read it correctly. It's yeah. just like so defeating. And then he just dies. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, oh it's such God. a humiliating end. And yeah. I can say with 100% certainty that when I queued this movie up, I did not expect it to end on an image of Christopher Plummer in drag <laughs> being executed on the Eaton Center escalator. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we're, and we're going to get to it, but that's a, a slight connection to Cape Fear eventually too, which I found very funny and interesting. Hell yeah. If, if you recall uh, the finale, which we'll get to. I, you're, you might, you're gonna, you might have to, you might have oh, to inform me. I don't know. I, I okay. You know what? I'll, I'll save it then. I will save it. Hell yeah. Oh, well, pivoting... wait. Yeah. No, I, I just remembered. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know what I'm talking about. Oh, you guys yeah. are both going to have to bring it up. It, it might come to me <laughs> we, as we, we get will, into the We will. It took me a yeah. second there. I was like thinking of what happens and yes, actually very good. I hadn't thought of that, but uh, <laughs> we'll discuss. Yeah. We'll discuss. We'll keep Absolutely. it cryptic we'll... for now. <laughs> Well, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, which for you, Anna, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and give the movie uh, a, a rating between one and five. Uh, but it's also turned into, like, closing uh, statements, or if there was any scenes or lines that we didn't hit that you wanted to make sure that we brought up, we also do that here, too. But uh, for me, this one actually got a a, a, a high four from me. I, I, I really thought that again we, we talked about you know the sort of like procedural logistical cat and mouse suspense stuff that's very Hitchcockian and I think I think really works but it does have again that sort of like 70s crime movie um uh, grit to it and then a little bit of that sort of like Canadian uh low budget charm which I always um enjoy there's a lot of really great uh Toronto location work uh I one thing I wanted to bring up was um Elliot Gold in his uh, bright yellow convertible speeding mm-hmm. down the DVP. Mm-hmm. Loved seeing that. Uh, have, uh, just seeing a shootout in the Eaton Center. <laughs> uh, kind of freaky, actually. Yeah, pretty um, much. But yeah, I, I, the thing that really took it over the edge for me was how um, downright thorny it ended up getting, especially with Gold as someone who um, is very keen manipulator, very willing to endanger himself and everyone around him for forty-eight thousand um, dollars, and Plummer is so psychotic that it actually sometimes makes you forget how kind of gross Gold is being. And yeah, like when he wraps Elaine's body up into the carpet and just disposes of it in the foundations of the building that they're building next, where to no him, one I will ever like, find it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, just the image of him dumping his girlfriend's headless body into cement foundations. It's so bleak and and, yeah. and kind of heartless in oh, a yeah. way that is 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 logical and kind of understandable. But it, it, it even though the film kind of does have this ending where, you know, uh, Julie ends up realizing that he is is the robber, but that they are going to get away with their daydream. It's supposed to be kind of like this happy ending. I couldn't help but think of just kind of how nihilistic that is, that the person. Yeah, there was some dark irony for sure. The person who is the most successful is the one who is just the best at manipulating everyone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there there is something sort of like. Um, dark about that. And I thought it was actually kind of cool too, that this ended up being a really big hit um, in Canada, the U S it kind of got a bit of a tepid response, even though the reviews were good for it. But in, in Canada, this ended up winning uh, uh, best feature film, best director, best editing, best score uh, and overall sound at the Canadian film awards. Oh wow. That's so awesome. this, this was like a, like a, like a full out recognized hit when it came out in, in Canada. And yeah, I was really glad that Anna brought it on because this is, this is, um, way darker and way um 
more uh, well made than I kind of expected. Because again, I haven't even seen a Daryl Daryl Duke film, um, yeah, but I'm either. gonna have to go check out. I, I saw that he did another oh, yes. film called um, Payday, which people said was was good, and that film has Rip Torn in it. So I'm gonna have to go check out that next. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I'd also give it the four out of five. Uh, I mean, watching Plummer be a complete psychopath was was a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, but I really, really loved the just the complicated nature of of Elliot Gold's character because once mm-hmm. again, just playing him so timidly and innocently, but just watching every step he makes become more awful and kind of more evil, honestly, and just filthy, uh, was was very interesting. And like you said, with that ending, it does kind of give this oddly nihilistic feel because we know everything that happened prior, and now we're getting this kind of hug and kiss romantic ending that just doesn't feel like it fits but but oddly because we know so much about what he's willing to do it, it really does but there's like this dark irony to it that i really like and uh and yeah just to see like the toronto mall and stuff that was really cool uh so yeah four out of five i'm gonna have to check out some of this guy's uh other films because i really liked it mm-hmm. yeah no i i love the idea of kind of like um elliot gould and, and julie like get away and they go find like a you know island to live on and they're kind Mm -hmm. of just like getting this like fresh start with the money and I just kind of want like that moment where she sort of says like so whatever happened to Elaine (laughs) yeah (laughs) he does say something like uh one day I'll tell you everything or something like that I'm like I don't think you will though (laughs) (laughs) there's everything and then there's everything yeah exactly Um, (laughs) yeah um no for me I would say like can I say like 4.5 out of 5? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah sure. I know. I love this. I think this is just, it's such a little gem. It really took me by surprise just how, how smart it is and also how grimy it can be. Um, I think this get it's, it's funny and it really gets dark at times. Um, I love Elliot Gould so much. I think I could just, watch him read a phone book and be really really happy (laughs) um i just think he's great i love how he plays these characters and yeah kind of that like long goodbye where it almost feels like you know there's a little bit of problems come to him and he's just like all right well i'm gonna deal with this and you know he's not necessarily seeking out robbing the bank it kind of just presents itself as this opportunity um Mm -hmm. and yeah i i think he's just wonderful i think christopher Plummer is incredibly menacing and it's just really fun that you know you have this like little movie starring the two of them and they're both like fairly you know big names now we obviously know them um and they're just great in it yeah i i really like this movie i think it's a it's a christmas classic for me (laughs) yeah yeah, I think it might be become that for for me as well. I definitely yeah. enjoyed watching Christopher Plummer as an absolute psychopath dressed as Santa and mm-hmm. in drag mostly. Yes. And yeah, it's it such great. a rewatchable film. Um it's just something that I think mm-hmm. I don't get tired of even just like noticing, you know, scenes in Toronto and even if I'm not kind of like checked into exactly the plot, there's enough happening on screen that I can kind of just like watch and enjoy. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a real treat. I like this movie a lot. I was very happy that you guys hadn't covered it so I could kind of bring it on. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't even seen yeah, it. No. So this was awesome. Uh, to be introduced. L- to. Listeners of our show are definitely going to enjoy this one. Oh and yeah. I hope that they're going to go check it out. Yay. Me too. Uh, but that being said, I think that's going to wrap it up for the silent partner. We are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about Cape fear. Here. I called the vet and then he died. Lee, I told you not to let him out. I didn't let him out! I didn't let him out! 
It would be unethical of me to advise a citizen to take the law into his own hands. You thought about me last night, didn't you? Evening, ladies. Hello. I think we're alone now. Where are you from? I'm from the Black Forest. Maybe I'm a big bad wolf. Do you mind if I put my arm around you? All right, we are back and we are talking Cape Fear, the 1991 American psychological thriller film directed by Martin Scorsese. It is obviously a remake of the 1962 film of the same name uh, directed by J. Lee Thompson. Mm hmm. Who uh, we, we haven't covered that film on the show yet, but we have talked about uh, Mr. J. Lee Thompson. He directed, uh, what was it, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Eventually we'll get into maybe some of his Planet of the Apes sequels. He did he did a lot of really, uh, J. Lee Thompson was one of the, the coolest like uh, journeyman filmmakers of like yeah. the 60s into the 70s. And then by the 80s, he was just making uh, canon picture movies with like Charles Bronson. I just went on the We Hate Movies podcast and talked about his movie 10 to Midnight. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I've seen that picture you were tweeting about. Like, is this for jerking off or something? Like, some weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just sex Charles Bronson just <laughs> just throwing like a a makeshift flashlight into the killer's face, being like, <laughs> "It's for jerking off." <laughs> oh, I gotta it's watch it's that. A, it's a good time. Oh, but man. but before he was getting got into canon pictures, Jay Lee Thompson, you know, he he did. Um, um, horror films he did you know sort of like prestige sci-fi films he did all kinds of different things and the original cape fear is uh, obviously it's a a major um again uh hitchcock riff uh they literally stole bernard herman to do the score for that film um huh. who did a lot of the uh music for hitchcock and the original film is just like um sort of a series of like expertly crafted, like sweaty kind of voyeuristic suspense sequences okay. um, that are, that are all tied together by um, the troubling contradiction of trying to contain primal instincts of like sex and rage and violence within a sort of civil and, and legal framework. And in that, so film, in um, the older one, it, it still has that whole like kind of psychosexual thriller aspect to it as well. Not just like the De crime thing. Definitely, but okay. but only it's uh, Robert Mitchum, obviously from uh, Night of the Hunter, okay. who plays oh, cool. uh, the uh, the sex offender role. Um, Robert <laughs> Mitchum is in, is is incredible in that film. Also, Robert Mitchum appears uh, in in this film as well. I guess Gregory Peck, Peck does, does as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, kind of like reversed, like you know, the good guy versus the bad guy in this. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but loosely Cape Fear, in both versions of the film, um, are about a character named Max Cady, um, who uh, has recently just been released from prison after serving uh, many years uh, under a, a rape sentence. Uh, in the original film, it's because Gregory Peck's character um, basically just testified that, that he witnessed uh, the rape. Mm -hmm. Um, and w w which, which puts him away, which kind of sparks his, um, revenge mission in, in this film. Uh, they actually have, uh, Nick Nolte's character who's playing the Gregory Peck role is actually his defense lawyer who in intentionally kind of like throws the case to get him thrown in, in, in prison. Um, but in both cases, while Max Cady is in prison for a number of years, 
He studies the law, and he becomes an expert on that very vague line in the legal system uh, between legal and moral, uh, and so essentially that he can better abuse it for his own uh, psychopathic ends. Because yeah. it's not technically a crime to say vague threats or to sit on someone's <laughs> fence or mm-hmm. to stalk them. Um And uh, it did remind me, actually, of one of the lines from uh, 10 to Midnight that Charles Bronson gets. Now, he says it in a particularly fascist context, but it it works for uh, Cape Fear as well. Uh, I remember a time when legal used to uh, mean lawful. Now it means loophole. (laughs) And that is essentially the suspense of the film is how is how Max Cady character can find um, very legal loopholes to enact his violent um, impulses that he wants on the people that uh, in particular in this film, he wants to get uh, revenge on. And what's what happens over the course of this film is a series of once again, uh, cat and mouse suspense sequences. But in this time, uh, practically full out like stalker horror sequences between two people who understand the law and in all of its flaws and, and dirty little secrets as well. Mm-hmm. I also, I just uh, want the to thing, um, oh yeah, go I, ahead. I think it might be the Rob, Robert Mitchum character who explains to um, Nick Nolte, like you know, the law is kind of set up for like some stranger robbing you in the dark, and like this sort of personal like vendetta. It's not really set up to protect against that. Um, so really, just like didn't uh, Max Katie like exploiting all of that? But. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the first sort of, like, immediate difference, I would say, is that the the original film, very classically Hitchcockian black and white. It's very, it's very uh, inky, and it's very, uh, again, sort of classical in a sense. And this has some elements of that, but this is absolutely, I think, as uh, Jamie and I have both said when, when <laughs> we reviewed it even separately, uh, this is Martin Scorsese possessed by uh, Brian De Palma yes. for oh, a couple yeah. weeks. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, all the, like, these, like, pinks and greens during the fireworks scene and then like the split diopter shots it's just the, the close-ups of sweating people the the dutch angles everything just feels very de palma for sure yeah yeah i mean like it's it it, it kind of shocked me the first time that i watched it because this doesn't really feel like any other scorsese film actually no. at the time it was kind of noted that it was it was a well-done film but a lot of the reviews kind of pointed out that this feels a little bit like uh, an impersonal film for Scorsese. It feels like a four higher genre higher, which to be totally fair, it was Mm -hmm. actually Spielberg uh, somehow was supposed to make this film at, at one point. Uh, It it was Spielberg to like his craft then, because I mean this, when I watch this, I feel like there is someone really passionate behind the camera here. Oh, Uh, Scorsese is just obviously a legend. He's just amazing. Of course. Um, just on and and that even even something that's a you know uh, an impersonal for hire project he's not going to tone it down he's going to no, do something at all. he's going to do something else but it, it is i think it does explain why it feels different than any other yeah, scorsese yeah. film um in in many ways not that he doesn't you know sometimes go psycho mode and not that sometimes that he doesn't you know get ab- absurd with some of the style mm-hmm. but it's just it, it's so perverse i find in ways that he doesn't normally go mm-hmm. and highly sexualized in a way that reminded me more of the palma as well yep. um but and, and you and you're right like the 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 intense colors and the and also just the fact that he's doing kind of like a thriller i feel like he doesn't usually do like sort of like simple thrillers like this mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. um but what what he immediately kind of stands out is that uh de niro also 
is is treating this role, which is kind of um, you know sort of uh, filthy and trashy in a way, and he treats it like he's gunning for that Oscar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he the, he the, makes uh, a meal out of Max Katie. It is wonderful to watch. The yeah. dude, the dude paid a dentist to fuck his teeth up for this role. Oh, really? That's wild. Like, yeah, even, even the introduction to his character is just so absolutely incredible. I mean, you're introduced to an absolute powerhouse right away. Like the big cross on his back as he's just doing these like pull ups in his in his fucking jail cell. De, De Niro with his like three percent body fat going on. I was like, yeah, dude, he's chill cut out. in this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got all these like vengeance Bible verses tattooed all over him. He, he's wearing that like uh, that hairnet. So his hair is constantly flat and slicked back. And it's just uh, it, it, it's such a character. It's such a powerhouse. Yeah, well, and he's he's also got like uh, the the Joker hair going on a little right, bit too. Right, I was like, yeah. man, he's he's gonna he's gonna become the Joker. That's what this film is. <laughs> um, well, and even one of his tattoos is a clown holding a gun and cigarettes and, and stuff. The Bible. And he's got, like, I think it's a clown yeah, and the holding Bible. the Bible and a gun, which is one of the craziest things <laughs> I've ever seen. And then to have him like the the introduction to kind of like just put him in the face of the audience to have him come out of the 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 uh, jail and then there's lightning in the background and he does that close-up right into the camera he just basically walks into the camera yeah it's it's fantastic yeah no it's 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 awesome i mean this opens such a tone the same as a lot of scorsese around this time period opens with a saul bass title sequence with like a with like a hawk and a water and and, an eyeball and drops of blood and then we start getting these yeah, well, it's it's uh, Bernstein, but they are uh, explicitly reusing some elements from the Bernard Herrmann score from Cape Fear, which oh, also cool. it's worth noting. De Palma always he when he could he hired Bernard Herrmann to do his scores because obviously he loved Hitchcock so much. But then also even after that, he basically did Bernard Herrmann ripoff scores for the rest <laughs> of his career. Okay. So, so you know that that, that, that also part, contributes the, like, to the 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 De Palma feel. Uh, you know the horn part. The it's you know very famous for Cape Fear. The 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 big horn kind of like four part melody thing that pops up anytime Katie is looking into the camera or something like that. Is that yeah. based on the original score in some way? Is that or is that a wholly original part for this '80s version or '90s version? I guess. Uh, well, I as far as I know, most of the music was it was it was re. Um, um, remade, like, basically. Uh, it, w- it was remade, but gotcha. most of it is taken from Bernard Herrmann's original compositions. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, and, and in fact, they actually used some other Bernard Herrmann, uh, like some unused scores from some other Hitchcock stuff that he did. Oh, sweet. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is, it, it's this guy Bernstein, uh, obviously like conducting it himself. Mm. Um, but a lot of it is Bernard Herrmann compositions and it's, it's just so awesome hearing kind of like that kind of what brings you back to kind of like that classical oh, suspense yeah, thriller, but yeah. then the images are so gross. Like again, <laughs> yeah, De Niro, very modernized. he's so ripped and slimy. And again, that, that shot of him sort of like uh, moving out of the prison with the giant storm in the background. And it, it, again, his face going straight into the, the lens and you can see like every like pore and little <laughs> tiny facial hair and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it's really horrible. And again, the, um, the amount of 
like sort of like zoom transitions and camera moves that are very big and ostentatious for for Scorsese and the queasy like sense of like sweatiness. It, it is all very De Palma like oh, yeah. doing, you know, the reverse shot split diopters. There's uh, very intense stylized colors. Um, and even the performances are just like overcranked in a way yes. that like De Palma would usually do. Yep. Um, because, you know, De Palma is not always looking for that sort of like, uh, you know, that, that quiet sense of intimacy or sensitivity <laughs> that you sometimes feel in a Scorsese film. He's always like, you know, he, he sometimes get, lets the performers go just as big and man, Nick Nolte and De Niro doing these sort of like su- Southern accents that they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Very fun. It, it's very cartoony, I guess, for Scorsese is, is kind of like what it feels like. Especially Katie. Cause, cause Katie is just like, he's got the, the deepest Southern drawl and it, it does very much feel cartoonish in a way, in a very good way. Counselor. <laughs> a counselor. Yeah, exactly. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 five hundred meters apart or I guess they wouldn't say they'd say yards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> five hundred yards, counselor. <laughs> and even just like the first scene where they kind of um are you know, their paths once again cross where um Nick Nolte is like taking his family to the movies and Max Katie's just like Puffing up a cigar, laughing <laughs> obnoxiously loud. It's so good. It's so fun. And I just love that, like, um, they leave and Juliette Lewis's daughter is just like, why didn't you punch him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beat him up, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I love the way that they, they film Katie uh, in that scene, too, because it's, you know, it's just right in his face as he's laughing obnoxiously. And even after the family leaves, it end, the scene ends with him still maniacally laughing like yeah. he never stopped. And, and it, it really just shows like his his lack of uh, his lack of care. And also it's kind of the beginning of his like mocking uh, Sam in a, in a way. So mm-hmm. it's a well, good, and, great and, introduction. And also it, it introduces him as just, he, he is a very uh, disturbing presence in, in the film yeah, in yeah. general, like both the, both as a physical presence just in, in the frame, but also a man you, know, you wouldn't want to the, approach. Yes. No, and, and and he's he's just so disruptive. Just no right. matter what he's doing, you <laughs> yeah. feel like even even when he's just in the background That's of a the good frame, just say, like yeah. like 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 staring, you he your eyes are kind of like drawn to look at him because he's just such a you know an, an overbearing kind of presence. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And yeah, the most of this film does become like honestly once again a, a series of 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 cat and mouse sequences. Only it's Nick Nolte is being. And his family, obviously, is is being pursued out of revenge. And one thing that I really appreciated about this, like one thing I found very cool in, in Scorsese's version, um, is that Sam Bowden, who's the character that Nick Nolte is playing, as played by Gregory Peck, is a very upstanding citizen who, you know, he testifies against a rapist and his domesticity is, you know, is threatened by that as as a result. Um, he's, he's sort of being being punished for doing the right thing. And um, Nolte's plays the character uh, like much more flawed. He's clearly like kind of like a serial cheater. He at one point he like hits his kid. Um, and in- instead of just uh, testifying, he actively breaks the law in order to get justice against Katie because it's worth mentioning uh, Katie in both versions of this film is a like a just a full blown rapist in this film. They actually yeah. say that he he raped a 16 year old girl. Um, so you do understand that Nick Nolte trying to get that man locked up. He's doing a good thing, yeah, but it, it is interesting. Very thorny that, there with like um, 
he uh, so he served as his like public defender and mm-hmm. um, had you know a report that the victim was quote unquote promiscuous that he then kind of buried where you know something mm-hmm. like that especially you know at the time this would have taken place in the late 70s um, right that's something like that being used against the victim would have like you know, gotten Max Katie less of a sentence because it would have been, you know, Mm. in his favor. And he kind of like buried that. And it's just like a very thorny situation of like, truly like what is right there? Like, do you use something that you shouldn't, but you have this report that you know would help your client, but like, it's not maybe morally correct to do so. Like it's a, it's a very like complicated little change from the original that I think is really smart. Yeah, and I think Sam, like, the character also understands that, uh, it, like, even that system is flawed because near the end he even says to Katie, he's like, what does it matter if she was promiscuous that doesn't that doesn't mean anything, that doesn't give you the right to rape her or anything like that? Uh, so it does show that he has an understanding that the system itself would have screwed yes. uh, <laughs> screwed the, the victim over. So, they, like, there, yeah, there's a lot of complications with that. Well, yeah, but and, and then there's also the complication that technically by law, your public defender has to defend you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That a, a to law, the best it's actually, of your ability, too. Like, you, you, yes. it, it has to be, so, by law. So it's, it, there's yeah, so, so, so much So he technically this. didn't do that, which gives, gives Katie, like, kind of, like, an interesting sort of, like, righteous leverage. And yeah. escalating the scenes of vengeance that Mitchum's character in the original film didn't quite have in that way. It obviously doesn't change the fact that Katie is a vicious rapist and <laughs> yeah. killer who's walked right out of a De Palma film. But, but while you're watching it, ju- you kind of understand why he's not getting in trouble because he's just riding that fine line. Yeah, it, it's just slightly more morally complicated enough to make right the whole thing feel a little bit ickier. I actually thought that um, uh, Ebert had a really good line in his uh, review that I think summed up that dynamic perfectly. And he wrote um, that unlike the simplistic version of this film that we have seen in a hundred thrillers, what Scorsese gives us is a villain who has been wronged seeking to harm a hero who has been, who has sinned. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so like, that's, that's just a very specific like moral complication that the original film um, doesn't have that Scorsese very intentionally. I mean, like Scorsese literally said that when he read the original script, because he, he, he read it and was being offered it while he was making Goodfellas. And he said that he actually hated the remake script when he first read it because he was like, it's the same movie. Actually, the Bowdens seem happier uh, than (laughs) they were even in the original film. And he was like, I want this to be a very miserable Family. And it's kind of like the, the crumbling of Sam's family is why Katie can take advantage of so much of this yes. stuff. So it really is like, a, it's a very intelligent move on Scorsese's part to include more of that because then it, all that distrust Katie can use to his advantage and he does. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and it's, no, it's ab- also absolutely. Just, no, I was going to say, um, even just like with that character, you know, where he kind of like you think, okay, like he, you know, buries this report because he believes it's the right thing to do because like who cares if the victim was quote unquote promiscuous right so you have that but then you also have stuff where it's like he you know within his family like he's cheating on his wife and like even that like personal dynamic you know complicates how much we can um like him or appreciate him or kind of view him as someone who has you know um a moral threshold that like he puts above the law because it's like, well, he's also cheating on his wife. Like where are his morals (laughs) at, you know, or like 
maybe about to cheat on his wife. It's kind of unclear what that relationship is, but you get the yeah, sense that bit. like you get the sense that like it's not totally kosher here. No, well, <laughs> it, the, the thing that the thing that they suggest is or that they uh, imply anyway is that he's done it before. Yeah. And that what we're witnessing is kind of like the beginnings of what could be him doing it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or so so what Scorsese, I think, does very cleverly is that he doesn't actually have the cheating on screen, but he kind of lays out like this scene where they're playing sw- squash together and they're sweaty and they're flirty. And like there's there's this this sense that like Nick Nolte sort of has the impulse to do it. He's thinking about it. Yeah. The, it the, the possibility is in the air. Um, it's like he could if he really wanted to. Yeah, and, and yeah. credit to um, Alina Douglas too, who who is actually uh, in in Goodfellas as well, who plays uh, Nolte's uh, law clerk, um, who has sort of like this flirtatious, uh, flirtatious sort of like rapport with him, um, and uh, meets probably one of the most uh, uh, gruesome sequences oh. in the film, yeah. where De Niro yeah, poor woman picks her up in like the sort of like improvised bar scene and then he because handcuffs Nolte her was back supposed her. to meet her and he ditched her yes she kind of yep. you know is sad and um goes to this bar where you know max katie picks her up it's ugh, it's an awful awful thing that happens yeah and then like you have that that just horrible scene after the the violent scene with with de niro um where where she's talking to to sam in the in the hospital and she's like almost you know like blaming herself in a sense, like thinking how stupid she is because she wanted to show Sam up through using Katie and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, you're just sitting there so sad for her because it's like, if you knew the half of it, this is not in any way, shape or form your fault. These two are really going at each other here and and you got caught in the middle and it's just such a, it's a really heartbreaking scene for her character. Well, and and, and it's a really good update on the original too because the, the original kind of has a little bit of this, uh, this sort of like dated idea of the legal system being flawed in that it doesn't let us uh, do sort of like vigilante justice a little bit. That's kind of the vibe you get a little bit from it, that it doesn't, right. it doesn't, it doesn't stop someone like Mitchum from doing that. But Scorsese takes that to like a full out sort of like rapist degree to the point where, um, you know, there's this really heartbreaking scene in the hospital that Jamie's talking about where she basically acknowledges that she's just like, look, I've seen the inside of the legal system. Yeah. I've, I've, Mm -hmm. I've seen girls report rapes and it's just humiliating and it doesn't work. So she, so she doesn't do it. And what's interesting is that she does it for Sam too, so that he doesn't get in trouble and shit, which is like, yeah, to do something so selfless for someone who clearly is more selfish. It's just, it's just, it's really bad. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Well, and and Katie too. Uh, it, it it's it's made clear to Nolte that he he basically intentionally chose her for that that reason. And yeah, when right. he handcuffs her and he bites a chunk off of her uh, face uh, and like spits while it he's out, beating like, her and and oh. and uh, like her. There's something that adds to it because of the way that. Um, that, that her character is like, she's very, uh, very energetic and happy and always making jokes and laughing. And so like, mm-hmm. she's just this, this pure ball of like happiness. It, it feels like, even though that's the outside, uh, inside, it feels like she has some struggles, but, but she, you know, she's making jokes with Katie. She's laughing her ass off. She's very funny, honestly, in that scene. And there's just such well, a it, strong it, that was and actually... quick transition from that to the, the beating. And it's mm-hmm. just so yeah. jarring. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, yeah, it, it, it 
Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, no, I was going to say also just like kind of tying back to um, Silent Partner, much like um, when Plummer kills Elaine, like it almost feels like there's, of course, like that violence towards her, but also mm. part of it is how he can use that violence to upset the other male counterpart of it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And like even just like he doesn't even... Uh, Max Katie doesn't necessarily care about her. He's just using yeah. that um, violence towards her to get to Nick Nolte. Yeah, and Jamie, I really liked your point about, you know, sort of her personality because I, I read up that it was actually Alina Douglas's uh, decision that apparently she was supposed to start being scared like the second he handcuffs her. Okay. But she made the choice that she was like still going to be kind of like laughing yeah. and oh. flirting like That's while brilliant. that part was happening. I like that, yeah. Because it really, it just sets in that, that that jarring moment where it's like the handcuffs are there. We know what this guy's capable of, but, you know, she thinks yeah. it's playful. Yeah, the dramatic irony just get, goes up to, like, another level because yeah. you're just like, holy fuck, we know what this guy is capable of. Uh, not necessarily he... on screen, but we've heard. Right, right. And that, that also, like, the, 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 the shot that they have... Um, when he starts the beating, it's like, like they do a the close silhouette. up of his fist and then, yeah. And then they cut back from outside of the apartment and you just see the, the, the silhouette from the, uh, the curtains. And it's just so, so brutal. Like without even really showing uh, like the beating or anything like that, the, the implications are just so violent. Yeah. It's very like viscerally upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and again, it, it contributes to the way that he feels disruptive because it, it is genuinely, like, a shocking moment. And, the mo- like, after Sam, uh, like, finds out that that is what happened, there's, like, this really crazy montage of, like, uh, various doors locking and windows closing as, like, Sam is obviously feeling like at any moment he could break in and do this to, you know, his, his, his wife or daughter. Mm. And that's when he goes, uh, to, um, uh, Mitchum's character, because I think earlier they got Mitchum involved, um, who obviously played the original Max Katie. And in this film, I think he's playing like the police Lieutenant or something like that. He, uh, they, they, they suggest that Max Katie has poisoned and killed their dog. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously there's nothing that Robert Mitchum can really do about that. And, but he says it in a way that's really funny. And, uh, the line that he says is, cause he's like, look, this guy, ha- he, he's stalking me. He's very likely poisoned my dog. He's very likely broken into my house. He has just attacked, uh, one of my assistants brutally. And what does Robert Mitchum say? He says, you know, I can't bust someone for planning to rape your wife. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Terrifying. So, shit. So, 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 so what? So, what he suggests is basically that he use his family as bait. Yeah. That that he he <laughs> he lure Max Katie in because once he does that, you know, then they can actually bust him, or then they can actually, you know, uh, later on in the film they decide to lure him in because then they can sort of like or they can righteously kill him if you know he they can catch him actually on their property. Um, is, is what am they I... eventually kind of hope for. One of my favorite shots, too, is when, like, they're trying to get Katie to come to the house and they have all these wires hooked up to one of Danny's old stuffed teddy bears. Mm-hmm. And, it's, yes. and it's just this so image good. of, like, using literal innocence as bait for, for Katie. Uh, yeah. And it's just it's such a great, great image. And even just I love, like, um, De Niro sitting on the like wall around their property where, oh, yeah. you know, like 
um, Nick Nolte will kind of say like, oh, he was he was at our house. Well, did he break in? No, he sat on a wall. And it's yeah. like, that, that's not illegal. He's not, like, coming over the property line. He's, like, just on the edge. Like, it's such a clever thing of where he finds that, like, gray area of, like, clearly this is menacing, clearly this is threatening, but, like, what can you do about it? Um, yeah. And I also, I love that Gregory Peck kind of cameos as the lawyer who Max Katie hires to yes. not only defend him when Nick Nolte wants a restraining order, but actually to get the restraining order on Nick Nolte for uh, Katie. <laughs> right. Yes, because because uh, Nick Nolte hires uh, Joe Don Baker, mm-hmm. who, Jamie, you might recognize from, we just talked about him on John Flynn's The Outfit. Oh, we okay. did with, um, with, with, with Brendan. He was kind of the guy who has the Southern charm guy who hangs out with Robert Duvall in that little seventies crime film. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so he gets hired as the PI and the PI kind of takes a look at the situation and he's like, yeah, you got a serious like dude on your hands here. I think De Niro says to a line when he confronts him saying not a hell of a lot to do in prison, but desecrate your flesh and read Nietzsche. <laughs> 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 and, uh, so, so Joe Don Baker is basically like, yeah, this dude kind of like means business. So we should hire some dudes to just beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah. And Nick Nolte at first is like very uh, upset about that uh, suggestion. He's like, I, I can't operate, uh, operate outside the law. The law is my business. Um, yeah. But obviously he's, he's starting to get more unhinged. He's starting to go a little bit. You is know, it insane. The, uh... some, of the, some of the shots when he's freaking out in with the paranoia, there's like these very sweaty, like high angle tracking shots, like following him around yeah. his office and stuff like that. One of my favorite sequences is when he's on the f- like they're they're having dinner, and at first they're discussing how it's like, hey, we can all relax, we're all yes. calm, and then as soon as the phone rings, they all jump like crazy, and then <laughs> Sam grabs the the phone, and instantly Scorsese goes into this like Dutch angle for Sam, really close up, and then when you get back to Kersey, who's the investigator that he's talking to, it's just a straight shot on his face. So every time they go back and forth you can just tell how unhinged and nervous and and just a wreck that sam is uh while on the phone with him it's and, and they do that a lot like there's another great sequence where i think it's either i think it's when the dog dies uh and he gets sam gets a call from the office and they do this really quick zoom on his face and then do a quick cut into the car where he's just like super nervous and kind of like angry and not really knowing how to feel on his way to the house there's some really awesome transitions like that that just kind of express what the the characters are going through specifically sam a lot of the time mm-hmm. yeah there, there's like some huge like low angle dolly push-ins on him while he's smoking yeah. and freaking out as well yeah um, but speaking of of katie i really do love that that those two shots of the fireworks it just shows like his kind of over the top personality <laughs> and all yeah. that while he's smoking the cigar it's it's fantastic the colors are great the, too the, the, the really upsetting scene and the scene that actually triggers him to decide that he is going to hire um, these guys to, like, beat Katie up is the scenes with um, his daughter, Danielle, played by Juliette Lewis, where he very creepily calls her and pretends to be like a like a sexy drama teacher yeah. that like is is interested in the same novels and, you know, fakes a little bit of sort of like a like a teenage angst a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. And the camera, like, again, does, like, full spins as he's, like, hanging upside down while he's on the phone with her. Just some <laughs> cr- 
crazy shit that like Scorsese has never ever done again. Yeah. Um, and but I the love way that, that he, it starts upside down and then does the spin like as he's uh, like upside down. It's yeah, it's fantastic. But the way that he manipulates like, uh, you know, Juliette Lewis is, who's playing the teen daughter, her like kind of like loneliness and her, her family's um, sort of abrasiveness and then a little bit of sort of like sort of like teen horniness a little bit. And the way that he sort of manipulates all of that is just very uh, upsetting and, and, <laughs> yeah. and very creepy. And that eventually is what, you know, because like De Niro like actually kisses Juliette Lewis and that is yeah, that eventually a, is what. That's a hell of a, a sequence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also <laughs> that makes you feel disgusting. It really does. But I think it's played so well. And again, into the whole oh, yeah. thorniness of the film that like she enjoys it. Mm-hmm. Like she really loves yeah. having this attention. And, you know, it's very much like, you know, she wants like that bad boy who her dad is like, oh, he's not good. And she kind of thinks it's like fun, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, everybody loves a bad boy. Well, not an ex-con rapist, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like she, 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 you know, she wants that attention. She's like 15 years old. And, you know, Max Katie comes in and like, you know, De Niro, I think, plays it so well. We're like, obviously, he is disgusting and vile and grimy, but like he's still mm-hmm. De Niro fucking ripped and he looks great. Like, you know, <laughs> De Niro's hot and like she's a 15 year old girl who thinks he's just a bit of a bad boy. And it's so well played how it's like very clear that she's like a little bit into it because she doesn't understand the extent to like how awful he is and why her dad wants, you know, her to stay as mm-hmm. far away from him as possible. Um, yeah. And the scene that night when I think like she comes home and kind of like they, they know what's going on and he, Nick Nolte is like confronting Danielle about it and she's still kind of giggling. Yeah. Like yes. she still thinks it's kind of fun. Oh, I just, I love how all of that dynamic is played. It's just so gross and it's so like you said, it's it's completely ripped from a De Palma film. Yeah, and there's something yeah, too that's so very uncomfortable. strange about the image that, like, because in that scene, the drama, the theater uh, scene, he does before they kiss and the finger sucking and all that. He kind of like grabs <laughs> her face, like like it's it's not it's aggressive, but there's this like uh, I don't know what you want to call it. it. It's he's he's still trying to be this badass romantic self, if if that's what you want to say. Uh, but then having the image of her father do it in a more aggressive way when she reacts the mm. way that she does is just so like I you, you get this very uh, jumbled feeling in your head. It's just it, it's uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just interesting. I'm not quite sure what to read from it, but it's like yeah, yeah, the yeah, distrust yeah, for her father. Yeah, yeah, and and like that that distrust for her father is now growing because of Katie and and all that. So it's yeah. Right. Well, and, and obviously, too, she's upset with her dad because she's hearing him like fight with her mother over his, you know, cheating yeah. that 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 he's Throughout doing. And and, yeah. and and she obviously hasn't seen what Nick Nolte is seeing, which is obviously his his assistant, like brutally attacked mm-hmm. and raped. So she honestly it, from her point of view, she doesn't understand. Yeah. Like she doesn't see the distinguishing factor yet, other than the De Niro just seems more charming, more fun exactly. to hang out with. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's giving her weed, you know. <laughs> he does that. He does that like tongue move where he like takes it out with his tongue and then gives it to her. Little trick I learned. That whole thing. 
Like yeah. he does have yeah. that oh, badass. His, it's, some of his lines that he gets are, are are so funny. Like that scene where he it that that is what inspires Nick Nolte to finally hire the PI's right. dudes yeah, to, <laughs> to to attack him. And these three guys come out and start beating him, and they start you know uh, hitting him with pipes and hitting him with chains and and slashing open his chest a little bit. What's wild um, too about that scene though is that they it's not like. Uh, like they start and then it's kind of like an equal fight where he's where he's he's getting hit a couple times, but then he 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 gets them back. He is getting the shit beat out of him. And then oh, yeah. and then he rises up and does it. It's just it, it gives this extra layer of like this this unstoppable being, basically. Because I mean the dude is getting laid out by three guys with pipes. I also <laughs> and he's I just like, like Oh man. Sorry, I was just like, I really like um, Jodon Baker's like expertise there when him and Nolte are talking about it, and he's kind of like, you know, a thousand will get you three guys, and you don't want less than three. Like it's like in his personal <laughs> kind of, you know, experience there. From this experience, is, this yeah. is how many you need to take down one guy sufficiently. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and he really takes that beating, and then he comes back up, and he obviously starts getting getting them back. And Scorsese shoots this like really, really intensely. And Nick Nolte yeah. is also watching from behind a dumpster just off screen. Um, so he he gets a couple really cool sort of like anamorphic uh, composed shots where like De Niro is sort of like out of focus in the background. Like at, at first he's being beaten, and then he's getting his he's making his way back up. And it's obviously very upsetting. And then De Niro one by one gets each one. And then he thinks he spots the counselor behind the dumpster and he goes, come out, come out wherever you are, counselor. <laughs> uh, and he, you know, he, he, he starts beating them all up. And he also gets this line where he's he's talking to uh, like like Nolte's character, but he's also talking to the guys and he's also just maybe talking out loud. But in his big southern accent, he's like, I can outread you. Oh, yeah. I can outthink you. I can outphilosophize you. <laughs> That's the best one take when he says that. I love that. <laughs> it's going to take a you. lot more than a couple wax to stop me. <laughs> it's so good. Absolute powerhouse. Yeah, it's just it, it, the, the way that like Scorsese is filming it, it's just like the, it, it, again, it, it feels filthy, it feels violent, and. Um, it just feels like grime covered and covered in sweat and De Niro just going full cartoon, like Southern accent with it. I mean, at one point, uh, what is the other thing that he reads out in that scene? I think I wrote it down. Oh, I am like God. Oh, and yeah. God like me. I am as large as God. He is as small as I. <laughs> yeah. He cannot above me, nor I beneath him. <laughs> and then he literally quotes it. He's like, Cilicius, 17th century. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and, and Nick Nolte is like, God damn it, this dude, this dude, he just, he just wants to brag about all the reading he did while he was in prison. <laughs> On another and level, obviously man. all the all the all the fighting that he got into. So you assume that that's probably how he was. He has become uh, so good at yeah, violence. And even earlier, I think he implies that he got raped in jail as mm -hmm. well. Yes. So like, there's this whole like, and th there's like a, a really dark irony to that too that he doesn't quite understand that <laughs> rape is horrible. And, and so <laughs> it's like, yeah, I remember when you got it done, but uh, like. Yeah, th th there's a lot of complications to his character when he starts bringing up his his past in prison, but it's all implications, which I like. Nothing is outright said a lot of the time. It's usually like these mm -hmm. these subtle lines that that imply a dark past within the prison or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you, you kind of just have to take it as it goes. But this yeah. is when, and it could also um, be him just trying to scare uh, Sam. 
That's like true. just trying to like paint yeah. up this portrait of like you know you don't know what I've been been I've been through and you know mm. I, I, that's all the like like sort of making him think like there's you know 14 years of that stored up and he's ready to get that vengeance. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I guess I shouldn't necessarily just trust Katie for his word. <laughs> well, and and what's what's kind of interesting too is that obviously we're kind of seeing you know from the point of view of Nolte's character who is experiencing all of these sort of like stalking and, and, and creepy horror sequences. And what's so funny is that it sort of climaxes in this sort of beatdown sequence. And what's so funny is that that is when, as Anna mentioned earlier, Katie Heil hires Gregory Peck to be his lawyer uh, to defend himself against a restraining order against Katie and in fact actually get a reverse restraining order um, because he is able to show his beatings and he also recorded an earlier conversation where Nick Nolte sort of lost his temper and legitimately uh, threatened him even though you know like he at that point he wasn't actually really planning to do anything um, yeah but those two things combined in a legal framework show yeah. Katie, or show um, show Nolte's character to be the aggressor mm -hmm. um, to the judge. So then the judge, you know, get like actually does file the restraining order against him. And this is when Nolte basically he loses a little bit of 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 faith in the law, and is when he decides to do go with Robert Mitchum's suggestion of actually you know using his family as bait and you know hoping that Katie breaks into their home so that then he can justifiably uh, kill him. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what I, what and I, I also is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say. Um, just speaking about Gregory Peck in that scene, what I like is that um, Gregory Peck has kind of been like a voice on the phone that Nolte has spoken to of like a lawyer kind of giving him advice. And then he calls him up again and he's like, oh, I, I can't speak to you. Like Max Katie retained my services yesterday. Um, so Gregory <laughs> Peck, his character kind of does, you know, exactly what Max Katie is looking for the law to do, which is like, I'm sure, you know, Gregory yeah. Peck, does not personally morally agree with him, but he is going to do everything he possibly can as a lawyer to defend and support his client, even if it's going after Nolte, who he's, you know, previously shown to be in conversation with. Um, and he's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, doing that thing where he is putting the abilities and the loopholes of the law above any personal ethical beliefs. Well, and yeah. and also it's doing what Nolte never actually did, which was that if someone hires you to defend them, you have to defend yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. They even have that scene he, where Sam like is talking to I think it's Kersey and he tells him like what happened and how he had a bit more evidence to help Katie, but didn't use it. And even Kersey seems like he's offended by that. Like he, he's kind of like, oh, you didn't do your best job as a defense lawyer. You're mm -hmm. a horrible human being. Well, yeah, it's, uh, the, uh, lawyers get in trouble and, and they right. even get sued for that kind yeah, of stuff absolutely. because it's basically yeah. like the whole point is that, you know, you're there giving them the best legal defense that they can possibly have. So if your lawyer right. is working against you, super bad and super <laughs> bad, obviously, for anyone who hopes to work in that industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And something I also liked about the setup where they're, they're trying to uh, to get Katie to go to the house is that Sam 
has to like stay low because he's supposed to have gone on a trip somewhere mm-hmm. and and it was supposed to be kind of a setup in that regard but but even those things that the the situation to try to get Katie arrested or whatever is 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 uh, developing more distrust and kind of like a lack of respect for Sam from from Danny because she's just like uh, like she says something when he can't stand up because <laughs> Katie might see him if he's looking she says something like yeah remember you can't stand up dad and then uh, storms off to her room. So it's just these like constant pile-ons of stress that she's having to deal with with this situation. And even the things I love they that she do always that helps just, doesn't really help her. At least I love right that she away. always runs into her room and slams the door and just puts on like MTV. Was, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super teenage moment. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Scorsese. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the final act of this movie is is the, pretty much the exact same as the as the original film where they... they um, uh, with one added inclusion of the scene where he actually does break into the house and he kills the, he dresses up as the housekeeper, mm-hmm. uh, villains dressing up in drag also, uh, a combining, um, uh, factor here, yeah. but he dresses up as the yeah, housekeeper that, who he kills. That was actually the, the thing wire. I was mentioning earlier. <laughs> oh, that's what you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, the little okay. connection. <laughs> For some reason, my brain was going, I don't remember an escalator in Cape Fear. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, he dresses but he, up. But, uh, he, he makes himself look like the um, the housekeeper, but he can kind of just like be hanging out in the kitchen, which is crazy. Like to to watch Katie and, or De Niro like in the in the maid get up and turn around and then just start strangling the dude. It's just such a. It's almost comedic how over the top and insane it is. Yeah, and strangling him with piano wire until the hand holding the gun shoots himself in the head and his brains blow out like all over <laughs> yeah. the fucking yeah. place. And it's the piano nice. wire that he took from the piano like scenes prior, like right sort of towards the beginning of the film. Um, right. Like you get the sense that like, oh, he's been in this house more times than we have seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's so, uh, and obviously what feels very De Palma-ish about this scene is Nick Nolte uh, slipping in the pool, uh, giant pool of blood. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. And then he just becomes then, completely unhinged, just like shooting randomly into the yard and stuff. Like, oh Yeah, man. he's losing it, man. Yep, just losing it. He's on it. He's on his property firing his gun into his lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> And, and, well, and, and, cause like that, that's the added scene that, that they threw in here because after that is in the normal Cape Fear where they head out to the, the, the big swamp, which is, uh, oh, which okay. is, uh, so this is the part of is, the classic version. Yeah. Well, because that's actually where the Cape Fear is, gotcha. like that's the, the, where Cape the location. Fear. Gotcha. I'm going to become the Cape Fear. Um, <laughs> But from, yeah, so they, they basically just do a sort of like they, they replicate the big swamp set, set piece from the original in, in, in this, in the original Mitchum, I think strangles the PI in the swamp and he makes his way onto the property. Uh, for the most part, the beats are, are basically the same. Scorsese just heightens them to an absurd degree. Like there's none of the, uh, the, the, the crazy boat sequence and stuff that they, they do in this one. It's more of like he breaks his way into the property. Okay. And and like into the into the like cottage that they have there and everything like that. What about uh, the But yeah, this this takes it to like a pretty horror movie extreme. What about the uh that classic move of him harnessing himself to the 
to the truck or whatever because that's great no yes no i don't i don't believe that that was in the original no, that, that's, that's amazing. this was an invention for this film which is so that's awesome. good well, it's become so iconic. Yeah. It's it's known as like the the, the Cape Fear move yeah. is that you're hanging out underneath uh, the the car as it's moving. And once again, um, I knew the reference from The Simpsons. Yeah, I was just <laughs> about Simpsons, to say, yeah. done so well in The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of my one of my fav- favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this this whole sequence just becomes um, like. Again, that that storm that was kind of following De Niro at uh, the beginning of the film, they kind of like find themselves in it now in this in this giant swamp. Mm -hmm. I like the way you put that. That's really good. Yeah. Well, because that's that's what it feels like, because it's like, again, that 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 storm, because Jamie pointed out, I think, right at the beginning. But like, it's such an imposing wide angle shot to include that. Yeah. And then when they end up on the boat, it is just so like destructive and it's so overpowering. And I mean like De Niro's shouting about how they're in like the ninth circle of hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like they're not even on earth anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he's like obviously like th- threatening to like rape his, his wife and child, like right in front of him until Juliet Lewis, like pours lighter fluid on his face while he's loading up uh, or he's lighting up like one of the film's many De Niro stogies that he's got going on. Yeah. And then you have that insane sequence where he's he's setting it up as if he's in like a courtroom for Sam and and he oh, keeps so turning good. to the camera like to the audience directly and as, asking as or acting as if we're the judge like that he's just like I know your honor but I have to keep going and stuff like that it's just it's so it, it's like it's unhinged uh but it 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 lines up with all of the the awesome like well, and, stuff and, we've seen and all, prior. all the burns on his face make him look like he's like Freddy Krueger now. Oh yeah, he looks uh, like he's having come back onto the boat. Yeah, it looks like he's come back from the dead. <laughs> like it's, yeah, and, it's and, and essentially he ju- he just wants Nolte to admit that he he screwed him because he yep. they later found the report that would have helped him years later. But yeah, that bit where he's like got a like got a gun in his face. And he's he's staging uh, Nolte like he's on trial. And some of the lines he gets, I wrote a couple of them down because they were so good. He'll like look back at the camera and be like, I'm sorry, that was argumentative, Your Honor. Because um, <laughs> he smacks him with the gun. He's a hostile <laughs> <Yes>. witness. <laughs> yeah. yes. Oh, man. Yeah, meanwhile, they're in like this elemental setting of the storm and the camera is going like topsy-turvy and De Niro is like screaming at the top of his lung about like hell and God and... Um, <laughs> How 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 lawyers' words and philosophies like cost him tangible years on his life and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, and this um, and this gets like it's not truly biblical when when the uh, the Danny and Lee they jump out of the out of the boat. So it's just Sam and Katie now, and eventually they get to kind of this like this the shore area and and Sam is ready. Like he takes this giant ass rock and is about to just smash. Uh, Katie's face in biblical style and the water just rushes him away and Katie starts to speak like in tongues and just purely bring <laughs> the devil out and it's just it's an unbelievable <laughs> um, five to ten minutes. I'm bound for the promised land I yeah. think is what he says. Yep, yep. And then that that uh, that shot of him with just his upper half of his face just the eyes just Again, watching like, like Sam plumber. with no it's blinking. Yeah, yeah. As he yeah. sinks into the water and and dies, presumably, it's just like 
it, it, there's something so over the top, like truly, truly biblical about those last 10 minutes, man. It's, it's well, and, and, and in typical Scorsese fashion, he has to introduce a little bit of a, uh, of, of a redemption element, a little bit of that religious element. Right. Like yeah. that. Uh, he, so he, he has that sort of like Christian imagery of like the, the washing away of, of, of the sins mm-hmm. and a little bit of like the washing the blood off his hands a yeah. little bit there. I do believe there's because a story basically where a man something is- he has created has covered his family and like mud and blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do believe there's a, a famous story where a man does like crush another man's head with a rock. So I think that there was something there too with that kind of imagery as well. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Well, and I think it's important too that he's denied that satisfaction. Yes. Like that catharsis of like eliminating this thing. He's actually just taken away by the storm. And honestly, kind of important. it almost felt like since it's like in this biblical sense or whatever, it, it almost felt like if it was, you know, God speaking to him or whatever, it was kind of like him not allowing him to murder Katie. Like it was like, I'll take that away from you so that you don't have to do that. I'll, I'll do that with the storm, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and, and to be fair, I think to the credit of what a little bit it, it, to me, it actually read also that part of De Niro's mission was to drag Nolte from that respectable point. father and lawyer yeah. into the mud and blood with him, proving sure. that in some ways he's a criminal as well. And then, obviously, in typical Scorsese fashion, they introduce some, you know, the re- religious redemption elements and the washing away of the blood. But I think it was important to um, to Katie that, I mean, he uh, what does he say when they're fighting near the end there? He says, just two lawyers working it out. <laughs> working it out, yeah. <laughs> also, I, I, I Googled it because I was curious. And um, just speaking about the biblical implications, um, Cain murdered Abel with, like, a stone, like I think the right. whole thing yeah, was, was bludgeoned. So, yeah. so right. So the original sin. Yeah. 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 That was definitely the one I think I was referencing. Yeah, it's really yeah. cool. I, I love all those those like biblical tie-ins and and just this this over the top directing from Scorsese. It's I love this movie. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, me, me too. And, and pivoting towards uh, reductive rating round, this one gets the, the solid to high four for me as well. I think that Scorsese uh, really takes advantage of that psychological uh, assault aspect, cranking up the, the stylistic insanity and the subjectivity to the point that it reminded me a little bit, maybe because we just talked about it, but it reminded me a little bit of a similar idea that they're doing in that back uh, third of Branded to Kill when we talked about. Oh, Specifically yeah. that segment where the number one hitman in Tokyo basically just drives him crazy by stalking and threatening him and teasing him until he's like a ball of sweat and hallucinations <laughs> and Nolte I think goes through a very similar experience yeah. um, you know eventually seeing this biblically tattooed southern psycho in his dreams uh, and, he, and he's freaking out about that and I think getting to see you know sort of uh, Scorsese get to go to Palma mode and get to do this like really oddball exploitation take on like you know, briefly a little bit of a courtroom drama and then a bit of like a psychosexual slasher to the point in, you know, some of the murder sequences. Um, you know, there's lots of vivid colors and the, and the, the Bernard Herman score and the, you know, idiosyncratic camera choices and stuff. And it's, it's very genuinely funny and perverse and scary in all the ways that I usually kind of associate with, uh, De Palma. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a, a lot of fun, and I do think that it gets at some really morally thorny ideas about you know you know what what is um, legal and what is uh, sort of like moral, mm. and it doesn't really let any of its characters off the hook. It ends with everyone covered in blood and mud uh, by the end of the film, 
and uh, De Niro just screaming. You don't even get the satisfaction of seeing him killed like you would in a, in a slasher movie. Um, you yeah. know, there's there's just this person exists because these elements exist in the world. He beca- he kind of gets just swallowed up by the elemental qualities. It almost feels so, like, yeah. in a way, like he ends... Whether or not it was like what exactly he set out to do, when he's when he's singing like "I am going to the promised land," it does feel like he is satisfied with what he's accomplished, regardless. He, I, yeah, I, I, that's why I think that he's proved his point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> he, he is like I. I have taken someone who was respected in lawyers' offices and respected in his home, and I have made him just as ugly as I am, mm-hmm. yeah. or at least looking that way. Yeah, yeah, I would. Uh, I'd also give it the four out of five. This honestly got like uh, closer to the five this time around. I'm the more I watch this movie, the more I appreciate it. Um, and yeah, if you want to watch Martin Scorsese be possessed by Brian De Palma for two hours, then uh, I would highly recommend if you if you haven't already watched this one because it's a it's a good classic. I would say so. Yeah, check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I also say four out of five. I think it's great. Um, yeah. You guys have said it all, I think, just really, really gnarly and mean and ugly at times and also super fun in just how much it goes for it. Um, Loved Nero's performance. I think it's like over the top (laughs) in all the best ways. Yep. Yeah. Big fan. He's 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 he he went out for it again. He he paid a dentist to fuck his teeth up. <laughs> Apparently he, he he went he went to uh, the south and had uh, just random civilians read lines into a tape recorder so that he could uh, mimic them. Oh, um, wow. He 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 apparently went deep into researching on on like sexual predator crimes. Um, and so he was the one who suggested <laughs> That'd be a hell of a rabbit where where he bites the woman's face off um, because that wasn't originally scripted. Wow. Dude, De Niro is just psycho mode. That's awesome. Holy shit. Yeah, he he went he went all out. Um, <laughs> it shows. It's great. It's a committed yeah, I role. I think that, that will uh, that'll wrap it up for Cape Fear and I'll wrap it up for this week's episode. That was The Silent Partner from 1978 and Cape Fear from 1991. Thanks so much Anna for joining oh, us and bringing us yes. films with you. Um, if you've got anything to plug, this is usually where we have you do that. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, and often writing at Film School Rejects. Um, yeah, if you like to, you know, just see people talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood incessantly, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. That's what I bring to the table. <laughs> hey, it's, 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 it's a value for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time doing your guys's, uh, voted on bonus episode. Um, by the time you guys are listening to this, we'll probably also have the vote, uh, the, the poll up for, uh, the next vote. But essentially now that we have, uh, enough patrons, we have you guys every two months vote on the double feature that we're going to be talking about next week's episode. You guys voted for a Cronenberg double feature of dead ringers from 1988 and existence from uh, or or existence yeah hard to say, say. The movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh from 1999 this one was suggested by patron cody downs and it ended up getting the most votes of any of the episodes so we're going to be sticking around in uh toronto genre mm-hmm. fair like silent partner and then we are going to be uh back in uh 
two weeks after that uh, bonus episode again, patreon.com slash Lizoids podcast for ne- next week's episode. The week after, we're going to be back. We're going to be moving away from uh, crime cinema, wrapping up Noir Vember. And we're just going to go back to the horror because we can't be stopped. Uh, <laughs> the next guest is going to be bringing on killer clowns from outer space. Hell yes. And brain damage by uh, Frank Henenlotter, which uh, some of you might remember. We just did uh, basket case yeah, uh, back in spooktober. Uh, so we're going to be following it up with brain damage, which I suggest everyone watch. So you better have watched it. You better have done your homework. That's going to be a fun episode, I will say. Yeah. So we're, we're going back in, in, into horror for December because that's what the holidays are about. <laughs> that's or right. And obviously the week after that is going to be your guys' uh, Christmas bonus episode, which we always do something uh, themed for that as well. So look forward to that. Beautiful. But that being said, I think that'll wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>